You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. You probably noticed the shirt that I'm wearing today. I know that there's no volume control on it. I know it's really bright. I wish I could turn it down for you. But you may also have noticed that it's a particular color or colors, right? This is green and yellow, beaver fan, representing the University of Oregon, the Ducks. And uh, I was given this last week for my birthday. So I was obligated to wear it for you today. But I was also obligated to wear it because my family and I were on the U of O campus uh, just a couple days ago for a college visitation day. We're making our rounds for our youngest daughter to, to some colleges and checking them out. So we were on campus a couple days ago. And lastly, but probably even most importantly, the Ducks play in the second round of the NCAA basketball tournament today. Yeah? So be praying for Rhode Island. They'll go home defeated, and they'll need to adjust to that. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big duck day, so I just I had to wear my shirt for you. So there you have it. But being at the University of Oregon a couple days ago, we were able to go into some of the residence halls and just see, you know, what, <laughs> what a lot of money will get you, you know, for your students to live there. And it reminded me, it took me back to, to when I was in college. I lived all four years in the residence halls at Southern Oregon State, And two of those years, I was on the the residence hall staff. I was a resident assistant my sophomore year. My junior year, I was promoted to be a hall director. And one of the the cool things about that experience was in in most residence hall systems, or at least at a lot of universities and colleges, you don't usually entrust a 20-year-old with the responsibilities of being a hall director. Usually you have to be much older and much more well-qualified, really, to serve in that kind of a role. But Southern Oregon was a little unique, and they would consider resident assistants to be hall directors just after one year of serving in that, in that role. And so when I was hired to be a hall director, I was the youngest hall director who was on the staff that year. I was the second youngest that they had ever hired. And the director sat me down of that part of the school and said, okay, here's the deal. We really believe in you. We see a lot of leadership potential in you. We see a lot of responsibility in you. And we're excited about you being one of our hall directors. And even though you're our youngest hall director, we're going to give you the most difficult hall on the campus. Because we believe that you can turn it around. And the hall that they gave me was a hall by the name of Forest Hall. And Forest Hall, at the time, was uh, a lot of things. One of the things it was, was the International Hall. And this was where the vast majority of the international students who lived on campus at Southern Oregon State lived. That was a good thing. What was not a good thing was there wasn't a lot of intentionality with how those residents were placed within Forest Hall. So by way of example, you had Saudi Arabians who were housed right next door to other countries in the Middle East who they did not get along with very well. You had a very diverse Hispanic community that was also part of that hall, and you had... Um, Hispanic folks, Hispanic students who came from countries that did not like each other very well. Then, also a dynamic of this hall was that in the disciplinary process at Southern Oregon State, if you were on your last 
chance to stay in the residence halls, the last thing they would do is they would move you to another residence hall and try to displace you, hopefully put you in an environment where you could actually try to make some better choices and stay in the system. And guess which hall was the placement hall on the campus? Forest Hall. So if you were a delinquent, if you caused trouble, if you just couldn't quite turn things around, they put you in Forest Hall. This residence hall was a powder keg. And it had significant problems every year. And so when the director sat me down and said those things to me, I thought, all right, I got this. I can do this. I am going to turn this hall around. And there's a statement that goes like this. Pride comes before the fall, (laughs) right? That did not work out so well for me. And in the story we look at today, this king was a man of significant pride. And he had a great fall as well. If you remember with me, as we've started into the book of Daniel here, this book out of the Old Testament, we're getting a snapshot of a man who had absolute power, the king of Babylon. Babylon was really the first world superpower to appear on the scene. They were truly the first empire to conquer all of the known world. And they had the largest empire at that time of any empire before them. They had the greatest army in the world. So this king was powerful. Where he lived was also impregnable. For those of you who are Lords of the Ring fans, do you remember Helm's Deep and the fortifications there? And here come the orcs in this small collection of humans. This was, this was Helm's Deep on steroids. Through excavations and archaeology, they've been able to determine that this this palace that he lived in, he actually had three palaces within the walls of this place, had six walls, six fortification walls. The inner wall was so large, it was 30 feet thick, you could drive three chariots abreast across it. There were never fortifications like this ever seen before. The moat surrounding this city, this citadel, was 262 feet wide. The primary defensive wall ran for 17 miles. This was a huge, impregnable city. And behind the walls of this city were the largest, most powerful army in the world, and this man was the one in charge. Not only was it impregnable, this city was beautiful. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the world. And the three palaces within the walls of this place were just amazing. And this king was incredibly prosperous. He was profoundly rich. Multiple gold statues everywhere. We saw in um, Daniel chapter 2 that he had built this 90-foot statue. Most scholars believe that that statue was completely overlaid with gold and that the head was made out of pure gold. I mean, rich affluent, powerful, and accountable to no one. And we see this progression of pride growing in this man's life. He is so audacious, he is so prideful that if you were with us last week as we looked at Daniel chapter 3, he builds this 90-foot statue. Most scholars believe it was a statue of himself. Even if it was a statue of one of the many gods he worshipped, it was a statue that was intended to reflect his glory. And if that wasn't enough, he demanded that everybody everywhere bow down and worship the statue, which was really saying, you need to bow down and worship me. And now we come to this week. 
This week we will look at how this man responds to God's work in his life. And because he resists God's work in his life, because of his pride and because of how it has blinded him, things are not going to go so well for him. Last week, if you were with us, when those three men were thrown into the fiery furnace, the three compatriots of Daniel, who refused to worship the statue and really to worship this guy, if you'll remember, God performs this incredible miracle, an angel of God or God himself, the bottom line is the representation of God is there, preserves the lives of these three men, this This king sees this happen, and I told you that we would save his response for this week. Well, this is how he responded. When God performs this miracle, saves the lives of these three men, he says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save this way. This king recognizes that there is a God who is real, who is powerful, and who has just performed this incredible act right in front of him, and this is how he responds. So, does the king truly repent of his pride? Daniel chapter 4. Let's jump down to verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Things are going well. And I had a dream that made me afraid. You ever had a dream that scared you? Probably most of us have. I don't tend to remember my dreams. I guess I'm a pretty shallow person. Because I just, I don't remember anything. I figure I've got a job to do when I go to sleep. I do it, I wake up, I move on. I don't remember my dreams. But my wife does. And we talk about them often. Jamie just has this incredible mind and she can recall and remember what she dreamed about. But I can't. But all of us have probably in a place where we've had a dream that has scared us. And this king who answers to no one, who is afraid of nothing, wakes up afraid. And this is his first-person description of what he saw. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So he summons his advisors. They can't interpret the dream. So he remembers many, many years earlier when Daniel had come and interpreted his dream. So he calls for Daniel and says, I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land, and its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. This is quite a tree. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for for all. And under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches, and from it, every creature was fed. And in the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. And he called in a loud voice, cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots be bound with iron and bronze 
and remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Do you know what happens when you bind a tree with iron and bronze? Even a tree trunk, even a tree that's mostly been cut down like this one. It sustains it and it stunts it. It sustains it. It will actually keep the tree from dying, but it stunts it. It will not allow the tree to grow. It remains a stump in the ground. But now this dream turns to first person, or like it's third person. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. This dream is about someone. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know, and this is why this dream is going to play out in someone's life, that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. There is a purpose to this prophecy, to this prediction, to this dream that's going to play out. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time. And we have to appreciate the flavor of what's going on here. When it says he was perplexed, it's not that he was analyzing. Okay, I need more data to extrapolate the appropriate conclusion, and then I can come to... No, it really means he was appalled. Here it says his thoughts terrified him because he understands, he knows who this dream is about and what this dream ultimately means. And then he responds this... And then the, the king, recognizing this, says, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its meaning alarm you. He's obviously reading Daniel's body language and is going, whoa, whoa, just tell me. And so Daniel says, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. And your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree from the Most High. And he has issued it against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with his roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules, which is another way of saying that God rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Daniel appeals to him on the basis of his relationship with him as a friend. Repent. And one thing that you will see is that God's grace always precedes his judgment. You see this all throughout the Bible. In fact, I challenge you, when you see God judge sin in the Bible, you go back and you look and watch and see what preceded that over and over and over and over and over again. It's his grace. It's the call to repentance. And we see it here. And all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, 
As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon who is built? I have built as the royal residence by whose power? By my mighty power. And for who? And for the glory of my majesty? Is there a little pride here? Yeah. And even as his words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High as sovereign over all the kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. The prediction, the prophecy, the dream plays out exactly the way God said it would. There is so much as we step back from this for us to to look at together. There's so much for us to, to learn here together. And I thought one of the best ways for us to go after some of this was to compare and contrast pride and humility. And I feel like I need to make a case for both this morning, a case against the dangers of how blinding pride can be because we live in a culture that encourages pride, that tells us over and over again, this is how we're supposed to live our lives. And when it comes to humility, oftentimes that's not real high on people's wish list. And yet it is the path to the very life that God wants to bless us with and really the very life that we're looking for. So let's start with pride first. We'll do a compare and contrast between the two, pride and humility. First off, pride creates a false reality. And the way it does this is it makes our world really, really small because life is now all about me. Life is all about me. Life for this king was all about him. And because life was all about him, how many opportunities did he miss to repent or to turn from his pride? God brings within his life, within his orbit, men who know God, who are Yahweh worshipers. Daniel, the three men with him who were elevated to leadership. And this king ignores that. God gives him a dream and tells him in the first dream that we're told about in Daniel chapter 2 that his dominion, his rule, his reign is going to be limited. His empire is not going to last forever. And it's very clear that God is the one who is in control of human history ultimately and he gets a very vivid picture of that and he refuses to repent. And so then, as he audaciously demands that everybody worship this statue, he sees this miracle played right out in front of him as God preserves the lives of those three men. He sees God himself, or at least a representation of God, and he still, as the miracle completely plays out in front of him, he still does not repent. And then God gives him a dream, and he still doesn't repent. And then Daniel comes and interprets that dream and makes a personal appeal based on his relationship with the king to call into repentance, and the king ignores that. And God gives him another year, a full year to repent. After all the warnings that have come to him, and still the king chooses to remain blinded by his pride. 
Pride ultimately blinds us to the work of God, but it also blinds us to the work of God in other people's lives. And it creates this false reality that life is all about us. Life is not all about us. And it ultimately begins to destroy our ability to empathize with other people. This king felt nothing for other people. He was accountable to no one. If you remember in chapter two, when he had his first dream, he demanded that all of his advisors, all those who were supposed to be able to interpret his dreams, be killed, every single one of them, without a second thought. He's ready to kill anyone who will not worship him and really worship the image that he built. And on it goes. He answers to no one. He cares about no one. And there are many times we can recognize pride getting to this point. We can all read the story and go, oh man, this guy had it coming. Seriously? But in more subversive, subtle ways, pride infiltrates into our lives and it destroys our ability to empathize. I'll give you a tangible here. How often do we, when someone comes to us who is hurt, who is struggling, who's in crisis, whatever, and we listen to them and then we tell them our story when they don't ask for it now in fairness there are times in our desire to help in our motivated by a genuine desire to help and bless someone that we do share our story but how often when someone comes to us do we end up telling them our story and if you've ever been on the other receiving end of that it doesn't feel real great when you just want someone to listen to you you haven't asked them to fix you you haven't asked them to tell their tell you their story you just want them to listen and to enter in and instead they tell you all about them what is that oftentimes it's pride We can't empathize with someone else because we're too busy telling them our story or telling them what they should do or trying to fix them. Pride can be incredibly subversive, but it also inflames our insecurities. Do you know what the problem with your blind spots is? You know what the problem is with mine? I can't see them. That's why they're called blind spots. So when something exposes that blind spot, how do, we, how do we respond? And again, this can be overt, it can also be subtle. For instance, how do you respond to people who God blesses? People who do what you do and are better at it. People who get some type of success. Can you, can you enter into that success? Can you genuinely be excited for someone when God blesses them? Can you be genuinely appreciative when someone is actually better than you are at something and God's blessing them as a result? Or, or what happens with that? Or when we compete, a lot of us are competitive. How do you lose? Pretty easy to win. But how do you respond when you lose? How come you absolutely have to be the best at everything? How come you can't handle someone else's success and on it goes? Those are all the subtleties of of pride infiltrating our lives and ultimately it robs us of joy. Ironically, we think that making life all about us is the path to joy and what Jesus called us to is really completely opposed to that. And we live in a culture that tells us that we are entitled. Everything we have, we are entitled to have. Boy, it's not hard for me to look at the beginning of our story there where the king is saying, I was in my palace, contented, prosperous. How often is that my perspective? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable, I'm blessed, and I should be. 
God owes me that. God wants me happy. How often do we hear that? God wants me happy. Well, he does, but he wants us happy on his terms, not ours, and his are always better, and he gets to define those. And there are times he will tell us what those terms are, and we will say, what? He says things like, if you want to be first, really you need to be last. If you want to be served, you first must serve. And on it goes, and we hear that and go, I ain't doing that in our pride because we think the path of the joy is no, people need to serve me. No, life needs to be about me. No, I need to be the priority. And ironically, it robs us of the very joy we're looking for. So let's talk about what we are called to. We're called to humility. And humility starts with a dependence on God. And there are people who will say critically, well, Christianity's for the weak. Christianity's for people who need a crutch. People's for Christianity who can't make life on their own. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't need God's help in my life. I don't need God. And ironically, they're talking out of blindness and brokenness, which, by the way, is where we all start. We can never look down our nose at someone who does not know Christ and say, well, I would never do that, or I can't believe I did. Maybe you didn't do that, but all of us are blind and broken apart from Jesus Christ, amen? And therefore, we are dependent upon him. Unapologetically, Christian says, Christianity says, you do need to depend on God. I do need God, because you know what? In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 10, it says, when I'm weak, I am strong, because God makes me strong. And yes, it takes humility to embrace that and to realize you don't have life completely figured out. You don't always have your act together. In fact, you desperately need an inside-out transformation in your life. And what is so profoundly ironic in what we're seeing happening here in this passage, and we'll really see this here in just a minute, you hear is this pagan polytheistic king who will worship Yahweh when his own people won't. That's why they're in exile. That's why they're in Babylon. Because blinded by their pride for hundreds of years, God warned them, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Quit cheating on me. Quit, quit living like an adulterer. Be loyal to me the way I'm loyal to you. No, 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 no. And finally, God executes judgment after a whole lot of grace. And now they're in this foreign land. They've lost everything. And they won't worship him, but this pagan, polytheistic pagan will. Humility enables us to be teachable. Look at the transformation that happens in this king's life. This incredibly self-centered, proud, self-promoting king. At the end of that time, after God had executed this judgment, the dream had come true, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. This is King Nebuchadnezzar saying this? His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven, heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, listen to this, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is a man 
who has been humbled, and therefore now he is teachable. Are you teachable? God will speak to you from his word, through the Holy Spirit, through the circumstances of your life, but also through the relationships in your life. So those of you who are married, when your spouse speaks to your insecurities or they point something out in your life, how do you respond to that? Kids, when your parents are discipling you, parenting you, and they call you to something that you really don't think you need to do, how do you respond to that? When a friend puts their finger on something in your life and you know they're right, do you unfriend them? Do you cut them off? Is there anyone in your life who you are accountable to? Because we are called to be accountable to one another, especially as Jesus followers. And that teachability, that willingness to respond comes from a a humble heart because that same humility empowers us to be thankful. And again, in this culture, we are taught to be discontent. Over and over and over again, you are told what you have, I am told what I have is not good enough. You have an iPhone 7 and you don't have the iPhone 14? What is wrong with you? You loser. Seriously? And we chuckle a little bit, but it isn't just technology. It's far more profound than that. It's not just the materialism that seeps into our hearts. It's how it impacts our relationships. You don't like your spouse? Get a new one. And by the way, you shouldn't be happy with your spouse. You shouldn't be happy with your friendships. You shouldn't be happy with the relationships in your life. You don't have enough. You don't own enough. You don't earn enough. You don't have a good enough job. You don't have a nice enough house or apartment. You don't drive a cool enough or a most recent enough car. You know, on and on it goes. We are taught to be discontent. And yet God's will is that we be thankful and that we learn to be content. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all all circumstances, even with an iPhone 7, because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You don't have to pray about this. It's God's revealed will. He wants you to live like this and empowers you to do so. When's the last time we focused on what we do have rather than what we don't? But humility also helps us recognize, bottom line, everything we have is from God. It's one of the central messages in this book and in this chapter. Everything we have is from God. And we become beasts. We live like animals when we refuse to acknowledge the grace of God, the dominion of God, the presence of God in our lives. And that's what's being vividly illustrated here with this, with this king. But you see, to enjoy the blessings of God, you have to be willing to recognize the authority of God and the grace of God. And this is not about trying harder. This is about believing more. Will you take this God at his word? That ultimately, it is better to be humble than it is to be prideful. So what's the bottom line with our king? He did repent. Did he fully repent? Did he become a Yahweh worshiper? 
did he become what we would say now as a, as a Jesus follower? And the answer is we, we don't seem to know. Scholars seem to be divided. We're, we're, we're not really sure. But this is what we can know and do know is that there is a defining moment where you have to be willing to call your pride what it is and in humility be willing to say, God, I'm going to do things your way because I believe your way is better. And that defining moment comes by entering into right relationship with Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, Yet to all who received him, to all those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Have you entered into that relationship with Jesus? Because if you have, distinct and different than every other worldview, every other religion that teaches in the world, Christianity teaches then that God himself, through his Holy Spirit, will come in your life and he will begin an an inside-out transformation. He will literally change you from the inside out. And he will transform you. But if you are not willing to call your pride what it is, to identify it, recognize it, call it, and act on it, and express and then live out a dependency upon God, there is a warning here. And here it is. It is not going to work out so well for you. It didn't work out so well for this king until he repented. And it did not work out so well for me. I have been promoted as the youngest hall director on this team to take on the toughest hall on the campus. Yeah, I got this. I can do this. Yeah, it didn't work out so well. By the end of the year, there was more damage, more vandalism, more disunity, more discord in my residence hall than had ever happened before. It was an absolute train wreck. They literally considered closing this residence hall after my tenure there. It had gotten that bad. My residents, I, I don't know that I'd say they hated me, but I wasn't getting Christmas cards from them. They did not like me because I constantly spent my time kicking a lot of them out of the residence hall system, not because I wanted to, but because I had to. And what that revealed in me was an insecurity that I knew had been there, but I had no idea how deep that ran through the center of who I am, my need for people's approval. And God put me in a situation to expose my pride and to show me that, you know what? I have something better for you. You live for an audience of one. My approval is the bottom line approval that you look for. And sometimes you do the right thing and it costs you, as we have seen through this series so far. And sometimes you live for God and it it comes with a cost. But ultimately that cost is worth bearing because it makes you humble and it makes you dependent on the God who loves you. And the God who has redeemed you and rescued you from an empty life of making life all about yourself. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.